As you know, of course, this is Daily Power Parsha. This is our week, our daily look, not weekly, daily look at the reading of the Torah. The Torah reading, of course, is divided into seven readings, one for each day. And so Monday through Fridays, we do this going through the Torah reading. Okay, so Torah portion this week is Vayikra. The new book is Vayikra, and it is a great time to, uh, to study Torah. It's a great time to be alive and to study Torah. Reading three, sorry, book three of Torah begins this week. We've done Bereshis, we've done Shemos, a.k.a. Genesis and Exodus. We're up to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. At least it rhymes with us at the end. This is Vayikra. It is the book dedicated, more or less, pretty much, to discussion of all things Mishkan-related, all things related to the, to the tabernacle, to the sacrificial rite in the tabernacle. We've done a lot of talking in the last few weeks about the structure itself, and the vessels, the furniture, the decor, the interior design as well. But what do you do once you have the building? Now what do you do? What's the functionality of the building? Well, of course, as we know, the, the main functionality of the space called the Mishkan and the temple, the, the Beit HaMikdash, the Mishkan, the main function is it's a place where offerings are brought, sacrifices are brought, a place of spirituality and connection, but primarily revolving around the sacrificial service. This book of the Torah talks about once we have a building, what do we do inside that building? What, what is the, the, uh, the, the daily avodah, the daily service inside this space? So let's jump in. We got a lot to talk about. So many different themes. Okay, Torah reading for Vayikra. Vayikra, of course, is the Hebrew name for the, the Hebrew name of the book. The English is Leviticus. Leviticus or Vayikra begins with a Torah portion called Vayikra, called Leviticus. And thus, we begin Leviticus chapter number one. All right. And he, he of course is God. God called to Moses. And the Lord spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, this is what God said to Moses. Mm. Before we go any further, you need to know that in the Torah, the word Vayikra is written with a small aleph. Okay, Vayikra is written with a small aleph. Let's see if I can find it right here. Give me a second. Okay, Vayikra, small aleph, boom. Let's find a picture of it. Let's pull it up right here. Open image in new tab, boom. Okay, this should help you see what's going on. Can everyone see that? The Vayikra, thumbs up if you can. Okay, notice the Hebrew. Of course, Hebrew is read right to left. The opening, the opening word of this book is Vayikra, and he called, God called. But look at that little Aleph. See the little Aleph? Look how, look how a normal size Aleph looks as written in the Torah script. That's Vayikra El Moshe. God called to, El is to Moses. So that's a real size Aleph. Look at this little superscript Aleph, this little, like, little baby Aleph. What's up with the baby Aleph? So I'll tell you what the sages say. Classic commentary. Is that Vayikra means, and God called. And being called is an expression of love. You know, when somebody calls you over, it means like they care about you, they love you. So Moses felt a little uncomfortable because God transcribed the Torah. To, uh, Moses actually wrote, wrote down the letters, wrote down the words. So Moses felt a little uncomfortable transcribing the word that indicates how much God loves him and holds him dear. So instead, instead, 
Moses wanted to write Vayikar, which means, and God happened upon Moses. God happened to speak to Moses. Like, you know, by the way, that's an expression, by the way, that's used with regard to the prophecy of Bilam. Bilam's prophecy is Vayikar, and God chanced upon him. God happened upon him. So Moses wanted to write about himself also. Yeah, God happened to, you know, happened upon, he chanced upon a conversation. No, God says you got to write Vayikra. So Moses writes with a small aleph. Small aleph is like, okay, I have to write it, but I feel uncomfortable indicating that, you know, God really loves me in a very special way. All of which denotes the, the humility of Moses. Moses is the ultimate person of humility. Moses is the ultimate, he's the paragon, if you will. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Um, okay, so Moses is the ultimate um, archetype of humility. He is the great leader. He's accomplished so much, but he doesn't make it about himself. Even this word Vayikra, which you know, makes it a little bit about himself, he's very uncomfortable writing to the point that he writes a small alf. Now I know what you're thinking. So you write a small alf, and now that draws even more attention. Aha, we would have ignored it. But now as a small aleph, because you want to be so humble, now we're all noticing your humility. Okay, but, I, but what can you do? I mean, you're going to notice it either way. But in this way, at least we have a measure, an indication, a simon, a sign of the humility of Moses. Make sense? Yeah? I read an interesting article from Rabbi Yossi Goldman from South Africa about humility. And he relates a story, a personal story about Nelson Mandela. That one day, you know Nelson Mandela, of course, yeah, Nelson Mandela. Champion of human rights, anti-apartheid, right? So anyway, so Mandela was apparently walking down the street one day in his neighborhood, in Rabbi Goldman's neighborhood. Rabbi, sorry, Rabbi, Gold, Rabbi Yossi Goldman is a, well, he was for, for decades, very prominent rabbi. He's now like an emeritus rabbi. He's not like on the pulpit or at the pulpit practicing. He handed that over about a half a year ago or so. He kind of retired, if you will. Anyway, but for decades, he was running the Sydenham Highlands North Synagogue. Sydenham Highlands North. That's the neighborhood where my wife, uh, that's the neighborhood near where my wife was born, we grew up, not born, grew up in Johannesburg. Anyway, he's a rabbi of a big synagogue there. And he says one day, he writes in this article, one day that Mandela was walking down the street. And um, one day Mandela was walking down the street and he met his, um, he, he encountered the Goldman family, the Goldman kids. And he was like super friendly and he walked with them. He held their hands, whatever it was, like little kids. And he's remarking how, you know, a great leader like Mandela still cared about the kids and like wasn't too big to relate. And this is Vayikra. Vayikra is the humility of Moses. Moses never got too big that he was able to relate to someone who was smaller than him. Small Aleph, humility, being humble, relatable. Moses, the great leader, the miracle worker, but a person who knew how to deal with people. You want to see the picture of this story? I just told you a story. You want to see the picture? Yeah? There's Mandela with Rabbi Goldman and Rabbi Goldman's kids. Isn't that cute? But you know what's even cooler? This I haven't told you yet. You know who else was there? My wife. Here's another picture. Mandela with a few kids and the girl in white... A little bit bigger. The girl in white is Leah. 
It's a picture of Mandela with a few girls and my wife as well. So, legit story, true story. We got that photo evidence to back it up. Humility. Humility. It's, it, it wasn't, I'm sure it's not something that Mandela even remembered. It was just something that was part of his character. Walking down the street, he met some kids, hanging out. You know, that was it. I'm trying to remember if he had like bodyguard detail, if there were, I'm trying to remember what Leia said, if there was like some security around him or if he was just taking a stroll down the neighborhood. I'm not sure. Either way, it reminds us of great leaders. Great leader and power of great leadership. Great leadership is not ego. Ego, it's like, you know, you know, someone's filled with ego and they may, they may have accomplished great things, but when they're full of themselves, it's like, okay, great. I guess you know you're, I mean, like, it just, it's, it's, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone wants to hang around someone. It doesn't seem as sincere or authentic. Yeah, and like, who wants to hang around someone that's all for themselves? I mean, really, seriously. So like, it's good to be humble. Yeah, Donna, do you want to jump in? Yeah. So when, during Rabbi Levi's sermon, this Saturday, and he gave a story about, you know, writing to the Rebbe, and, a, you know, uh, one, a member of a congregant wrote to the Rebbe for a problem. So it came, I, I was wondering, so who do we write to today? You know what I mean? Mm. You know, we... <laughs> Good question. You're saying, so on the topic of leadership, so new, who's the leader? Right. I will tell you that Chabadniks, till this very day, still write to the Rebbe. And send, send letters to the Ohel, to the Rebbe's uh, resting place. Um, if you go to the Ohel's website, there's a place to submit a letter. And obviously, you know, you're not going to get a letter back in the way it was. But at Tzaddik, we know this. No soul, no soul ever dies. A soul can't die. Let alone the soul of a Tzaddik. The soul of the Tzaddik is still operational. The body's not, not around. Again, this is true with every person, but let alone a tzaddik who lived a spirit, such a spiritual life, you know, even with a physical body. So there's still, there's still uh, let's put it this way, there's still good connections, right? The Rebbe still has good, the soul of the Rebbe still has good connections. So, you know, you can petition. Anyway, the prayer is typically, obviously we pray to God, we don't pray to human beings, but we petition um, the soul of a tzaddik to pray on our, on our behalf, and then we, you know, and this is what we're praying, this is what we're hoping from God for, etc. It's no different, this is something that's not a Chabad thing, it's a Jewish thing. I've said many times, I've mentioned it you know, many times before, there's a tradition before the high holidays to go to the graves of loved ones and tzaddikim and pray at their gravesite. We don't pray to humans, but we ask that, I'm saying, or those that are deceased, but we, we ask them with their connections, their spiritual, their soulful connections to help intercede on our behalf. And that's the, that's the formula, if you will, of the prayers. Um, okay, so that is that. Now, let's jump back in. Okay, here we go. I'm going to share the screen. We'll X that and X that. Okay, back to the read. So, okay, God calls Moses. No, that was a long, long intro on the first verse. Okay, so God calls Moses from the tent of meeting and says the following. God says to him, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when a man from among you brings a sacrifice to the Lord, and this is referring to a voluntary offering, a person wants to bring a sacrifice, not that they're required because of a sin offering or a holiday offering or a paschal lamb. No, this is a, this is a, a an offering that is coming from the generosity of a person's heart and spirit. They wish to give 
a gift to Hashem. They want to bring an offering to God for God. So what types of animals are permitted to be brought as a sacrifice? So God says to Moses, here's the deal. From animals, from cattle, or from the flock, you shall bring your sacrifice. Okay, well, there you go. Animals, cattle, flock. Essentially kosher animals. I mean, it's not so specific here, but kosher, domesticated, domesticated kosher animals. So when I say domesticated, I don't mean like, um, I don't know, like a house cow. What's a house cow even? It's not even a phrase that anyone's ever said in, 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 in humanity. What I mean is like not wild animals like lions, tigers, and bears, which are not kosher. Okay, let's continue. If a sacrifice is a burnt offering from cattle, an unblemished male, he shall bring it. Now, this is referring to a burnt offering. There's different types of voluntary offerings. One is called the Ola. That is what we're talking about now, the Ola. Ola is the burnt offering. Ola literally means elevation. Like when a person gets called to the Torah, it's called an Aliyah. When a person moves to Israel, we call it making Aliyah, right? You, and Aliyah means you're rising up, you're going up. Even if Israel is south, it's still going up because ascending in holiness to the Holy Land. So this sacrifice is called the Ola, which means the elevated, the elevation offering or the burnt offering. It's not talking about lifting up the animal as much as it is referring to the fact that it was burned on the altar. And thus, when you burn something, the smoke obviously goes up. So this is the burnt smoke fire elevation offering. So if a sacrifice is a burnt offering from cattle, and I read this a moment ago, but let me just read this again. An unblemished male, he shall bring it. It should be a male animal and unblemished in the sense that it doesn't have a deformity, a defect, or some sort of like a broken leg, a, a, cut, a, a cut or a bruise larger than a certain amount, as described in the Mishnah of the Talmud. Essentially, don't, don't bring God like some animal that's like, you know, an unhealthy animal. It's got to be a, a healthy, unblemished animal. And in this case, it's got to be male in order to qualify for the Ola offering. All right, he shall bring it willingly, because again, it is a voluntary offering, to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. He shall, now, one second. What does it mean, the entrance of the tent of meeting? What's the entrance of the tent of meeting? I hope by now we all have a picture of what this looks like. Remember, the Mishkan was the, the outer courtyard perimeter, the, whole, the, the footprint of the entire space, including the courtyard, was 150 feet by 75 feet. So 150 by 75, relatively large area, a pretty big footprint. Inside that larger area was the Mishkan building, also known as the Tent of Meeting, right? That was the covered structure made up of a perimeter of like boards and walls covered by four or five layers of curtains and, and animal skins. So when a person brings the offering, they are to take it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, in other words, in front of the door that will lead into the tent of meeting. They do not go there. The person does not enter the tent of meeting. It's not allowed. To, only a priest doing the service can go behind that curtain. So this is, this is not for anyone, any, uh, you know, uh, uh, Yankel, you know, any, any individual that wants to bring a sacrifice is not permitted to go past that curtain, but stands in front of the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. All right, let's continue. What else should happen? And he, the offer, the bringer, the individual who's donating, if you will, the sacrifice, he shall lean his hand forcefully 
upon the head of the burnt offering. There's sort of some sort of um, placing the hands on the animal. And it will be accepted for him to atone for him. So there is some measure of atonement here as well. Okay. And he shall slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's descendants, the Kohanim, shall bring the blood and dash the blood upon the altar. Around the altar, which is at the entrance of the tent of meeting, this is the outer altar, also known as the copper altar, also known as the sacrificial altar. These are where the sacrifices were brought. So the blood is sprinkled upon and around the altar, which is again in front, outside, in front of the tent of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its prescribed sections. And the descendants of Aaron the Kohen, and others the Kohanim, the priest, shall place fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's descendants, the Kohanim, shall then arrange the pieces of the animal, the head and the fat on top of the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. And its innards and its legs he shall wash with water. Then the Kohen shall cause to go up and smoke all of the animal on the altar as a burnt offering, a fire offering with a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. Okay, so that is... Point number one, somebody's bringing a voluntary burnt offering. It should be an unblemished male. The, the animal is sacrificed. The blood is dashed on and around the altar. The animal is cut up into pieces. Parts of the animal are washed in water first, right? Innards and legs, the kishkas, if you will, right? Washed with water. And then everything is burnt. The entire animal is burnt on the altar. That is the fire burnt, elevation, um, what else is it called here? Uh, yeah, offering, called bur uh, burnt offering. Okay, make sense so far? I mean, look, it's animal sacrifices. How much, you know, it's not something that we're, we're doing on the regular. Um, but nonetheless, okay, let's take a look at some, well, there's a lot of Rashi's here. And I'm going to try to like just pick and choose some stuff that's, uh, that's going to be hopefully either clarifying or you know, um, inspiring here. Um, Rashi says, typically, typically God calls Moses with the words Vayidaber or Vayomer or Vayitzav, which means he spoke, he said, or he commanded. But here, it's Vayikra, he called. That's unusual. And Rashi says, Vayikriya, Vayikra called, is an, is an expression of affection. It's affection. And thus the Torah is using an, a, a phrase of affection, and that indicates that every time God spoke to Moses, he first called him. Hey, Moses, come on over. Let's have a schmooze. So it's like, it's like the affectionate call before the communication. By the way, I'm just going to say this right now because like, here's a practical application. You know what the message is? Before you tell someone something, make sure there's a rapport. Is that the right way to say it? Rapport? Make sure there's some sort of connection, affection, bond between you and them. It makes the communication that much more meaningful, powerful, effective, right? You just want to jump into things. I don't know. May not work. Call them, you know, engage in small, whatever, like engage in, 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 in connection building, and then you tell them. What's the less, what's the lushen? What's the, the expression? No one cares what you know until they know 
No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? No one cares how much you know. It's like, oh, here's how much. Here, I'm so smart. Here's what I know. I don't know. I don't know if anybody wants. I don't know if anybody cares. But if they know how much you care about them, oh, now they're going to listen. This is true in life in many different areas. All right. So that's and God sets this standard or sets this um, protocol. Vayikra Moshe and Rashi says he always did that. He always first called them with affection and then launched into the conversation. Um, he called to Moses. I love this one. Rashi says the divine voice emanated and reached Moses' ears while all the rest of Israel did not hear it. And you know why that's pretty powerful? Because God's voice is pretty loud. It's the same booming voice from Sinai, but only Moses heard it and not everyone else. Now, I mean, that, I mean we, that makes sense. We all have things that only we can hear, no one else can. I mean, the whole half the world walks around nowadays with either headphones or earbuds in. I walk around sometimes with earbuds in. That's, I mean, it is what it is. I'm listening to stuff or whatever. Um, yeah, that's, that's the truth that we live. We live in a world in which some people are listening to things that other people aren't listening all the time. I mean, anyone with their cell phone. Yeah, you're in the store and there's someone's like on their cell phone. I mean, sometimes you can hear part of the conversation, which is, you know, for better or for worse. But, I mean, it's like, yeah, that one person hears and others don't hear. It's a normal occurrence. But this was a, somewhat of a miracle or a miracle that God's voice only reached Moses but did not reach the ears of everyone else. Um, what's interesting here is, and I want to cut out some of this back and forth. Um, basically, Rashi says that God divided his communications to Moses into different subsections, right? Subsections. Now, Rashi asks, what is the purpose of these subsections? Why did God split up his message to Moses in different segments? To give Moses a pause. To contemplate between one passage and the next, and between one subject and another. And then look, look, look what's continued. And if this pause for contemplation was given to the great Moses when being taught by God, then how much more necessary is it for an ordinary man learning Torah from, an or, from another ordinary man to be allowed pauses between sections and subjects to carefully contemplate and understand the material being learned. I love that. When God is teaching Moses, the greatest teacher and the greatest student, I mean, right, God is like, who, who could teach better than God? Moses, who can learn better than Moses? You would imagine. And yet, God knows that even Moses needs slow. You gotta go slow. One idea, think about it. Ready for the next one. Next idea. Go slowly, methodically. When teaching, you got to step by step. You can't run into everything at the same time. It becomes a challenge. One thing, another thing. How much more so when we study and teach Torah, it has to be slow and methodical. Yeah, that's the process. That is the process. Look, we're learning pedagogic, pe pedagogical skills here. It's already the second idea. Look, you could, there are different stories. You open up Torah passages and there's different narratives. Right. One narrative is how to bring a sacrifice. That's the basic narrative. The other narrative is how to communicate. How to communicate, number one, create a relationship. Number two, give space in the conversation. That's already our second pedagogical tip, second teaching tip. We haven't even got to the animals yet, but already we're getting lessons in communication. You want to be a communications major? Study some Torah. That's it. Or, you know, go to college. But you can also uh, take Torah's lessons as well.
All right, back inside. So far, Rashi's are pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Okay. Um, Yeah, this is what I was mentioning before. It, God's voice emanated from the tent of meeting. This teaches us that the divine voice stopped and did not project itself beyond the tent of meeting. In other words, when Moses went inside the building to hear God's voice, it stopped by the curtain. Now, you know, curtains aren't really soundproof. Yet, it stopped right there at the door. It didn't go outside. Now, one might think that this is because the voice was low. Scripture therefore says that when Moses came into the meeting, he heard the voice. The voice. What is the meaning of the voice? The definite article. It is the voice referred to as the voice of the Lord in strength. The voice of the Lord is in beauty. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. Basically, all right, this is what I said before. It was the, the, the voice of God. The same voice. The same infinitely loud, booming voice. And yet, it stopped where it needed to stop. Okay. Um, yeah, where did the voice of God emanate from? From above the ark cover. Between the two cherubim. Rashi clarifies. Okay. What sacrifice? So all that is a preamble. What actually was communicated or what should be communicated about the sacrifices and what law regarding the Ola offering, which is a voluntary offering. So Rashi clarifies that. Um, scripture is not dealing with an obligatory sacrifice. Rather, it's a voluntary sacrifice. All right. So voluntary sacrifice. Oh, look at this. It says Adam. If a man will bring. It's not gender specific, but it means human, but it refers to human as Adam. Why is Adam used here as opposed to Ish? The different names for man in, in Hebrew. Adam, Ish. Why Adam, not Ish? It's, it alludes to Adam, the first man on earth. And teaches us the following, just as Adam, Adam, the first man, never offered sacrifice from stolen property, since everything was his, who did he steal from? <laughs> who did he? No one was around, he couldn't steal. So too, you must not offer sacrifice from stolen property. Do not go into your neighbor's yard, grab a sheep, and bring it as an offering. You gotta love this derivation. It's so beautiful. The fact that the Torah used the phrase Adam Kiyakrav Mikem, when a person brings a sacrifice, they use the word Adam, that itself indicates no stolen. Do not fence your stolen animal as a sacrifice. Do not do that. Do not repurpose stolen property as an offering to God. God does not like that. That would be the ultimate chutzpah, right? Hey God, I just ripped off this animal. Would you like it? No. The answer is a strong no right there. Okay. All right. From animals, from flock. There's a lot of details here. I don't, I don't think we have time to go through everything here. Um, just quickly scanning this. Give me a moment. All right, here we go. He shall bring it. Rashi says this clause teaches us that the person is coerced to bring the offering if he is remiss and bring the sacrifice he has promised. He had promised. Look at that. Person says, I'm going to bring a sacrifice. He pledges. Let's say he pledges to bring a sacrifice. 
Um, and then he reneges, and he's like, eh, I don't know, whatever. So, no, the, the court actually kind of uh, pushes him to do it. They shall force him. Now, one might think that this means that they shall force him against his will. No, nope, you can't do that. Scripture therefore says he shall bring it willingly. How is it possible that on the one hand he should be forced, yet, he sh- that yet it's willingly? The explanation is that they may coerce him until he says, I am willing. In other words, try to convince him until he says, okay, I'll do it. And that's, of course, in a case where a person pledges but doesn't do it. I, I want to tell you there's two forms of pledges. One pledge is where, per- where it's on the person and one is where it's on the animal. Let me explain. There's two types of things. One is the nether, one is an nedava. So one is uh, two types of promises or pledges. One is where a person says, I will bring, I, I will bring an animal. I'm going to give God an animal offering. I got this. I'm going to do. That's a, that's a, a personal um, pledge. Another form of promise is where a person points to an animal and says, I'm going to bring this animal as an offering. There's a difference. One is about the person. It's a personal obligation. The other one is an animal obligation. So one obligation is on the person. I will, bring an, I will bring an offering to God. Okay, that's a... The other one is this animal will be brought... Will, will be, this animal is hereby designated as an offering. One is on the animal. One is on the person. In both cases, though, one is obligated to follow through. Whether it's the personal obligation or the animal obligation, one is obligated to follow through and deliver on their pledge. Okay, next, he shall lean. What was the leaning? Rashi doesn't have an explanation about this, but the leaning was almost a transference of energy. It's like when you lean your hand, it's kind of like the energy flows from within to without. And it's the idea of connecting with the animal. Just a general point, none of these animal sacrifices, it's not, you know, it, it, it was, none of this was for no purpose. When I say for no purpose, what I mean is, None of this was just wanton, you know, just uh, animal sacrifice. This was all about a, a deeper spiritual connection and essentially deeper spiritual lessons that a person is learning themselves. And part of this, especially when it comes to like a sin offering, we're not talking about a sin offering right now, but, but in, uh, in, the, in the context of a sin offering, for example, the idea is it's a meditation almost to think about how what's happening to the animal should really be happening to us. And, and then kind of like connecting with the animal and being empathetic and then recognizing the, you know, the pain of disconnection and the pain of, of, of you know, mistakes and then to commit to, to fix that. Um, a burnt offering is all about the idea of giving something to God and connecting with that experience and it's about sacrifice and giving up. And there's a sense of, of, of empathetic connection with that animal. It's not meant to be a detached experience. In fact, if one just brought the animal and didn't have that inner experience... You know, it, it really was missing the whole purpose of it. The whole purpose of this, of this, um, of this experience, of this moment, was to have that type of deep, deep connection, which is alluded to in the idea, uh, in the process of putting one's hands on the animal. Rabbi. Yes. So, so that mean, does that mean that it's really it's not a joyous experience? Correct. It's more of a yeah. yeah. It's more of a solemn experience. It's a connective experience. It's a real experience. Other commentaries like the Ramban Nachmanides speak at length about this idea of how like, you know, we spoke in our last meditation session about the importance of meditation or kavana, intention, intentionality when doing a mitzvah. Uh, look, this is one where intention was absolutely required. If you're just taking an animal, killing an animal, that does not do much. That does not do much for God or for you, right? 
It's about mindfulness, especially when something else is paying a price here. It's almost like I'm going to say this phrase, and I, I kind of mean it. It's like, how I don't mean you specifically, but how dare one compromise the life of an animal wantonly, right? It's only, only, the only permission is if it's for some sort of, you know, deeper connection or higher purpose, etc. The same thing is true with eating, right? What gives us the right to end a life in order to eat? The answer is only if it's done for a higher purpose. That's the only, it's the only allowance. If it's done to, to give energy to our bodies so that we can serve God. And the understanding is that the service that we, we, we human beings can do of God, including the 613 mitzvot, not, including but not limited to, the 613 commandments is something that animals simply cannot do. That's not part of their mission. It's not, it's not what they, they cannot do that. An animal, a cow cannot wrap tefillin or light Shabbat candles or um, whatever it is. An animal just can't do that. So by consuming an animal, getting the energy, and then doing a mitzvah, we've now converted and transferred the energy of the animal into a higher place. All of this to say, simply, that it must be a mindful experience. Everything has to be mindful, but especially when you're taking and compromising another form of life, which would apply to a vegetable as well. Pull it out of the ground. Cut something down. Killing an animal, killing a tree. Or not killing a tree, killing um, something that has roots, something that, that, that's alive. Even something inanimate is alive, it has a soul. So any consumption, any use, really needs to be with a higher utility. The same thing is true with the sacrifice. Sacrifice wasn't just to slaughter an animal. It was for a higher purpose, a higher connection. So that's the importance of like leaning the hands. Is about, it's about being one with that animal. Does that make sense? It's like putting your hands on the animal. It's like, it's a connection. I'm not like DJ, hey, I just take the animal, I get rid of it. That's not, that's not at all what's happening here. This is a deep connective, introspective experience. And so you need to connect with, the, with that animal. There needs to be this type of, uh, you know, skin connection, you know, physical touch connection. Okay. All right, back inside, back into some Rashis. We are picking and choosing some Rashis over here in the first reading. All right. Um, All right, it says that the blood should be sprinkled by the Kohen, by the priest. What about slaughtering the animal? So we learn from here that the slaughtering could be done even by a non-Kohen, right? Slaughtering is valid even when performed by a non-Kohen. Theoretically, but in practice, typically Kohanim were the ones that did the slaughtering. My grandfather of blessed memory, just parenthetically, was a Kohen and a ritual slaughter. And I, 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 am, I am like, I cannot tell you how many times he talked about looking forward to being able to participate in the Beis Hamidosh in the temple experience. He's like, you know, I've, I've been doing this for years. I'm, I'm trained, I'm good at, wasn't bragging, just saying like how much, you know, like there's gonna be a third temple, sacrifices, he's ready to go. He was definitely ready to go. All right. Um, Okay, uh, just looking, 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 blood, blood. No, very technical. Dash the blood around. Do, 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 do. Okay, I'm not going to get into details about that. Uh, 
Place the fire. Oh, here we go. The sense of Aaron shall place fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Look at Rashi. This is unbelievable. Even though fire descended miraculously from heaven onto the altar to consume the sacrifices. You heard that. Black and white. Fire came down from heaven to consume the sacrifices. Nonetheless, it was a mitzvah for a mortal to bring his fire to the altar. Once again, a powerful lesson in life. Yes, God could do it. But God wants you to do it. God will do it also. But God wants you to do it. Right? Yes, there's a fire from above, but God wants your fire from below. God wants your fire, my fire. God wants our fire. It works better in the Hebrew. Even though there's a heavenly fire, it has to come from us. We got to bring the fire. So the pre on a practical level, yeah, they had to arrange the wood and the fire and stoke the fire on the altar at all times. Sure, but it means for us as well, we got to create that fire. Can't rely on, on God. We got, we got to do it ourselves. Let's continue. Okay, here we go. We talked about the burnt offering when it's going up as a burnt offering, as a, uh, when it's being burnt in the altar. So it creates the smoke, etc. And it creates a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. Rashi, pleasing. Um, this word stems from the same words as nachas. You ever heard the word nachas? Everyone knows nachas, right? Nachas. Na so the, in Hebrew, this is reach nichoach, which means a pleasing aroma, pleasing fragrance. Rashi says reach nichoach is related to nachas. Nachas. Here it translates it as contentment. I think it's more than content. It says Nachas. I have nachas from the kids. What's nachas? It's not contentment. It's like a joy. It's a love. It's a sense of, I don't know. It's more, it's more than contentment. So God says, the sacrifices give, give, gives me, the sacrifice gives me contentment, joy, pleasure. For I said, and my will was fulfilled. I issued the, 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 the I, I said what I wanted, and it was done. By the way, this case is a voluntary offering. So it's not like God commanded it. But that creates the greater joy. In other words, the greater joy is when the other one does something of their own volition for you. What's greater? If you ask for a gift and get it, or if the other one chooses to give you a gift? I'm going to say, if they think about you on their own, that's a greater gift. right? If I tell you, you know what I would like? I would like this gift on that day. It should look like this and be this, and I, and I, give, I dictate all those details. I mean, it's still nice to get it, but... I don't know. It doesn't really talk about the love and connection so much as it does about, you know, somebody following orders. But if you get a gift, you know, I'm not saying for me. I don't want to make it about me. Right. If, if it's, not, it's not about if, if one if one tells the other what gift to get and they do it. Uh, but if the other gives the gift of their own on their own from their own place, that's meaningful. That's special. So God says. I, I gave the gen. I, I let you know that sacrifices are a thing that I would like, generally speaking. And then you stepped up and did it. That gives me nachas. Oh, I love that. I love that. By the way, this is also a lesson in life. Give God a gift. We know what God likes. We know what God gave us a Torah with the mitzvot. We know the genres that God likes. Do a mitzvah for God. Do out of the blue. Do a mitzvah for God. God, I love you. Here's a mitzvah. 
That creates the ultimate joy. Not when you're obligated to do something. You know, you're obligated to, like, just do a mitzvah. I mean, every mitzvah is really an obligation on one level, but it's, you know, surprise God also. All right, next, back inside. Um, okay, we're, oh, so we're up to verse 10. Let's actually toggle Rashi off. We did a bunch of Rashis already. There's a lot of Rashis here to cover, but we're not going to do them all. Let's jump into verse number 10 and get to the second half of our conversation. And if his offering is brought from the flock, right? So not from, what do we have before? We had the young bull, not from the bull. But if it's brought from the flock, so from sheep or from goats, as a burnt offering, if that's what it's brought from, the livestock, the sheep or the goats. So he shall sacrifice it once again, an unblemished male. Unblemished male, just like before, just like with the young bull, it should be a male, unblemished animal. So to here, if it's from sheep or from goats, it should also be unblemished and male. And he shall slaughter it on the northern side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's descendants, the Kohanim, the Kohanim, shall dash its blood upon the altar around, and he shall cut it into its prescribed sections with its head and its fat, and the coin shall arrange them, the pieces of the animal, on top of the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. And the innards and the legs he shall wash with water, then the coin shall go offer, shall offer up all of the animal and cause it to go up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a fire offering, with a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. That's the nachas. Once again, we're talking about a carbon ola, a burnt offering, the entire animal, inside and out, is burnt on the altar. Nothing is eaten from this animal. It's completely burnt. It's an offering that's completely for God. No agenda, no self-gratification. It's not like, I'm. you know what, let's go. You know, somebody calls up a friend and says, let's go out to eat. You know, okay, you're also eating. So you're also enjoying that. That's not totally about them. It's about you also. In this case, it's totally for God. I'm not eating any of it. The coin is not eating any of it. It's totally a burnt offering. That's a declaration of love and care and connection to God Almighty. Okay, let's go back inside and let's, let's take a look at a few more Rashis. If we can find some Rashis that will, um, that will give us a little bit of insight into this. Let's, let's take a quick look. Rabbi Arvi. Yeah. Have you talked about the space, the, the space between uh, verse 10 and verse 11? With the, between verse 10 and 11? Yeah. We did not speak about the space between verse 10 and 11. No. Actually, maybe between 9 and 10. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, because Rashi says, it, this gives Moses an interval for contemplation mm. between one section of the Torah and another. Oh, it's right here, yeah. yeah. I heard before. I thought it was interesting, yeah. Yeah, we had it right here. And the truth is, Rashi explained that before in the opening verse of the Torah portion, that there are breaks between the intervals and that's how God gave Moses a chance to process the information. And yes, and you're right, it is between 9 and 10. And the truth is, we also stopped and we went to Rashi. So it sounds like we're intuitively mirroring God, right? In, the, in, this, in this way of, of giving a little space to have a conversation and then jump back into the text. Okay. Um, yeah, so from the flock, from sheep, from goats, but not all flock, sheep, and goats can be brought. The three exclusions are an aged animal, a sick animal, and a foul-smelling animal. Those are not valid to be brought as offerings, I guess, for obvious reasons. Okay, aged, sickly, or foul-smelling is, uh, is not allowed. 
Okay, now... Um, okay, that's all the Rashi for this for right now. Let's move on to reading number two. Okay, reading two continues the Ola offering, but now we're going to talk about birds. So we talked about the heavy animals. We talked about bringing a, a bull. We talked about the lighter animals, sheep and goats. Now we're going to talk about an Ola offering, a burnt offering from the birds. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 14, reading number 2. And if a sacrifice to the Lord is a burnt offering from birds, he shall bring it from turtle doves or from young doves. So again, if somebody wants to bring an offering, they're not obligated, they just love God, and they, they just want to give an offering. Great. You can choose from the livestock, from the heavy animals. I don't know if I'm getting the, the terminology right, but from like the cattle, the heavy animals from the lighter animals, or from birds, okay? If you're doing birds, it's got to be either turtle doves or young doves. And the Kohen shall bring it near, the, near to the altar and nip off its head and cause it to go up and smoke on the altar. And its birds, and its, the bird's blood, shall be pressed out upon the wall of the altar. And he shall remove its crop along with its entrails and cast it next to the altar on the east side to the place of the ashes. I guess that part is not burnt. He shall split it open with its wings, feathers intact, but he shall not tear it completely apart. The coin shall then cause it to go up and smoke on the altar on top of the wood, which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a fire offering with a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. So this is the bird protocol for how to bring bird offerings. Okay. Um... The fact that it says from birds, Rashi says, excludes a bird lacking a limb. If there is a bird that is lacking a limb, once again, like by animals, that's considered to be a blemish and that bird cannot be brought. Turtle doves. Because the verse specifies young doves, whereas it simply says turtle doves without saying young, it must refer to adult ones only that may be offered and not young ones. So what the two options are turtle doves, older turtle doves, or young doves. And when it comes to turtle doves, it's got to be the old ones. When it comes to doves, it's got to be the young ones only and not the adult ones. Anybody know the difference between a turtle dove and a dove? No? I mean, they're different birds. Apparently, different birds. Probably related somehow. I just picture a turtle dove as like a turtle and a dove mashup. Right? Whatever. Anyway, but that's, I'm sure, not what it is. Turtle dove is a bird. A dove is a bird. You can bring, if you want to bring this Ola offering, it's got to be an older turtle dove or a younger dove. All right. Oh, and by the way, there's a middle ground that both birds are unfit. Take a look. Birds whose feathers have just begun to become reddish in both species are unfit for sacrifice. Why? For they're too old for young doves and too young for adult turtle doves. So if it's just turning, you know, reddish, then it's no good. Rabbi R. Yeah. Why was the coin told? to kill it in such a terrible way. Nipping off its head? No, with his fingernail. Yeah, I don't know. 
Um, I mean, the fingernail was sharp, sharpened. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Saying, why not use a knife? I'm not sure. Because yeah, I know that for me to be kosher, uh, they have to sharpen the knife first, check for nicks. Yeah. And after they do it, after the, after the slaughter is done, if it has any nicks, the, the animal's still not kosher. Yeah. So it has to be a clean cut. But in this case, the thing that would know is no way to be clean cut. It, you, would, you would imagine it would be a little bit harder to get that, uh, to get that as painless as possible. Yeah, I know that's a good question. Yeah. It's a good question. I'm sure there's deeper ideas on it. Um, that's, a, that's a good subject to, to look up. All right, so we'll, we'll put our, our team of investigators on it. Everyone feel free to look up what is the deal with the fingernail form of, uh, of bird slaughter here for the bird offering, for the ola offering. Um, what am I looking here? I wanted to find there is a very interesting Rashi. Um... Where is it? I, there's a Rashi or some... Here we go. Here we go. This is what it is. This is I found it. All right. It's wing feathers. The bird is burnt with its wing feathers. Rashi says, But you surely will not find even the simplest of people who, when smelling the odor of burnt feathers, does not find it repulsive. In other words, burnt, burnt, burning feathers is, is a really terrible odor. So why would they do that? They would burn the whole bird along with its wing feathers on the altar, but that smells really bad. So why then does scripture command us to send the feathers up in smoke? So Rashi explains the feathers are left intact so that the altar should appear to be sated and adorned with the sacrifice of the poor man who could afford only a bird. And this adds a piece that I, I've been meaning to mention. We talked about the Ola offering in different types, a bull, a sheep or a goat, or a bird. So how do you determine what to bring? It's based on means, based on the a person's afford, you know, what they could afford. If they could afford a more expensive animal, great. If they could afford a less expensive animal, great. If they couldn't even afford any animal, just a bird, also great. But listen to what Rashi says. Rashi says, so why were the feathers burnt? Why didn't they take off the feathers, pluck the feathers first, and then burn the bird on the altar? It smells really bad. Why? To give it the biggest possible look on the altar. Because here you have somebody who's poor, who's donating a bird, and imagine if they, when they bring the, when the offering goes up on the altar, it's like a little, like a little, a meager thing. Feel bad. They might feel bad about themselves. If it has feathers, it looks a little bit more full, so it's a little bit nicer. So the Torah cares about the sensitivity of the one offering the sacrifice to, um, to, to mandate that the feathers be kept on, even at the expense of the nose of the of everyone present. Don, I see you mentioned something. Oh, Sarah. Oh, here we go. Doves are a species of birds in the Chlamydiae family. Well, turtles are a species of the type of subspecies, type of the dove species. Cool. Nice. So dove is the general category, it sounds like, and turtle dove is a specific form. By the way, there's a lot of interesting dove and turtle dove conversations. Oh, and Donna writes that Noah sent a dove out of the ark after the flood. Correct. Correct. At some point, either this week or next week, we'll get into the difference between turtle doves and doves. I don't mean the biological difference, although that's also a thing, but get into the um, legal, Jewish legal dif- distinction between the two. Very fascinating. It says, yeah, yeah it says t- turtle doves are acceptable after they become mature and doves are acceptable only when they are young. When they're young, exactly. Yeah. Yes. 
Okay, now let's get back in. So the, the bird was brought with its feathers so that it should look a little bit more full, a little bit more robust. Okay, oh, let's, and we're going to conclude, I think we're going to stop right by Exodus, by, by Leviticus chapter 2, because I think we've, we have a lot to process today. Um, I'm going to read this Rashi. Although the Kohen splits open the bird, he must not tear it apart into two separate pieces. Rather, he must tear it along its back. Okay. Now, regarding a bird offering, okay, that was, I didn't really mean to read that part, but this part. Now, regarding a bird offering, it says here, a pleasing fragrance of the Lord. And regarding animals, it says a pleasing fragrance of the Lord. Same thing, nachas, reach nichoach, it's God likes it. From here we see, listen to this, from here we see that both in the case of a large animal or a small bird, the fragrance is pleasing to God. Which teaches, this teaches us whether one offers much or little. It is equally pleasing to God, provided he directs his heart to heaven. And that's the final lesson that we're going to discuss today. At least um, the final lesson that I want to mention today is that whether a person can afford a big gift or whether they can afford a relatively smaller gift, if the person is giving it sincerely, and out of love for God, it's accepted in the same exact way. God is not looking at the price tag of the gift. God is, oh, you gave a bull. Very good. You gave a bird. Ah. Some, some human beings are like that, right? They'll judge the gift based on the price tag. That's not how God operates. God does not operate based on price tag. God operates based on sincerity. You can give a big gift and not be sincere. You can give a small gift and be very sincere. It's not the gift, but it's the thought that counts, right? That's what they always say about gifts, right? It's the thought that counts. How true. Again, we have so many big ideas that originate here in Torah. So I want to just quickly recap some of the ideas that we discussed today. We had ideas about pedagogy, right? When you, before you tell someone, before you instruct them, before you educate them, build a relationship. Vayikra al Moshe, God calls Moses over. It's an expression of love. There's a rapport, there's a relationship, and then the technical communication. There's a whole book, and I look at my bookshelf here to see if I have it. I don't believe I have it here. I have it at home. There's a, there's a book, um, a, a, a full discourse or series of discourses known as Klali Hachinach Vajracha, the principles of education and guidance, penned by the previous Rebbe. And it's all about a guide for educators, how to teach. But more than how to teach, you know, two plus two is four. But how to really educate, how to really mentor, how to guide another human being. And, the, and step one, relationship. You cannot influence someone else without a relationship. You have to have a relationship with them. You have to know them. They have to know you. You have to care about them. You have to love them. There has to be a connection. Otherwise, they might end up knowing two plus two is four. But anything deeper than that... It's not going to happen. You're not going to change your life. You want to you influence someone's life? You want to guide someone? You got to care about them. So we learned that today. God calls over Moses, an expression of love. God says, I care about you. Now let's talk about animals. So that was number one. Number two, as Mark also pointed out, we had this before a few times in, in, in today's reading where the indication is given that God separated or paused between different sections. God didn't just say, all right, here's the 10 things. Boom, 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 boom. No. God said one thing, then gave Moses time to think about it and to ask about it and to question it. Then God told him the next thing and gave him time. God created prokim, sections, 
section breaks, pauses in between the various sections. And that is instrumental when it comes to teaching and learning. We have to give ourselves time, time to process. If we try to learn too much too fast, it's not going to work. If we try to teach too much too fast, it's not going to work. We've got to go slow, section by section. Make sense? At least I should do is check in at this point, you know, having spoken about checking in and giving sections. Right? And then the last thing we learned, the last insight, if you will, is about giving and sincerity. It's not about the price tag. It's not about the size of the gift. It's about the sincerity of the heart. Anyone who's received a gift knows this to be true. Right? I mean, I guess with some exceptions. You know, sometimes it's, it's good to get the gift. But if it's about the relationship, it's less about the, gift, the specifics and more about the sincerity. And so thus, as we talk about the Ola offering, which was a gift of love, it, it was not a mandated offering. This is not something that a person was obligated to bring. It's not like, oh, you sinned, here's an offering. Or it's not like, it's a holiday, you have to bring this offering. It's a totally pure thing, um, uh, gratitude offering, love offering. Giving to God, great. That's great. No matter what you give, God's going to like it. Whether it's an whether it's a bull or a sheep or a goat or a bird, a small little bird. You gave it, God loves it. As long as you give it sincerely. As Rashi says, as long as it's coming from the heart, you don't have to worry about how big the gift is. Okay, powerful lessons today. And in between all this stuff, we also talked about some details about animal sacrifices, which type of animals, unblemished, where the blood goes, etc. All right, questions or comments? Yes. Jump in. Yes. Yeah, one comment. Sure. Yeah, in obviously, right, maybe not obviously, uh, God tells Moses that the turtle doves are to be butterflies, uh, not just put, put whole. And I know that when I butterfly chicken, it always looks more impressive, it looks large. That's what, that's just what I believe that that is indeed the, the rationale behind it. That's the way I understand it. And to explain it in case somebody doesn't know what butterfly is, I didn't know that phrase either. It took me a second to realize what we were talking about. It's basically taking the bird and splitting it in half, but not cutting it all the way through. That way you have two parts, but cutting it, let's say, halfway through or most of the way through and then opening it up so that you have now, it's a larger presentation. And I think it's the same rationale. What you're saying is what Rashi said regarding the feathers. You keep the feathers on, the wings and the feathers, to make it look more impressive. And you probably open it up for the same reason. I, when I read it, I had the same thought. Yeah, I think, I, think, uh, I think we're thinking along the same lines. All right. And that's also, you know, maybe the final lesson is about sensitivity. You know, you know someone is doing the best they can. Make them feel good about it. Make them feel good about it. You know, don't, don't be like... Uh, is that all you got? I mean, that's who, first of all, who would say that, right? No one's going to say that. But there's a sensitivity that we're getting. God says, make it look big. Make that person feel good because they did something amazing. I love it. I love it. The only question is if they're going to know how much I love it. So let, let, let's make sure they know how much I love it. In life, it's not quantity that matters. It's quality that matters. It's not It's not kamas, it's echos. Kamas is quantity, echos is quality. It's the quality of the gift. Quality of the gift. All right, my friends, that's it for today. Um, tomorrow, same bad time, same bad channel. We are back on. We're going to pick it up from the middle of the second reading, chapter two. Look, over the next few weeks, there's going to be a lot of sacrifice-related conversation. It's a very, I'm just going to reiterate what I said before. It's a very foreign concept for us. We don't, not a thing in our experience, not part of the Jewish experience. 
I mean, the closest we get to this is eating, right? But most of us are not involved in that process. We're not. We get it once it's um, assuming, I'm assuming chicken and meat eating for this conversation right now, for the parallel. Most of us get it when it's already packaged in a way that takes it completely out of any identification that it once belonged to an animal, more or less, more or less, right? It's like, it almost like it exists right here. Remember, you know, kids, when they first find out, like, chicken and chicken are the same thing, it's like, what? Chicken? It's almost like there's two realities. There's like the chicken and then the chicken. It's like, the chicken is the chicken? Yeah. I I feel like it's to our disadvantage today, by the way. I feel like back in the day, or even today, if you live with, with animals, with livestock, with cattle, if you live on a farm, if you're part of that process, you know the animals better, but you also know about... It's just part of life. It's just part of the lifestyle. It's like part of, of living and being around creatures and cycle of life and, and sort of how like, you know, everything is integrated into the next thing, how the minerals are integrated into the vegetation, vegetation into animals, animals into humans. Again, you, no one has to eat meat. I'm not like pushing it. I'm just saying that in that context, there's, a, there's an integration. It's almost like being detached from it creates a, could create a, um, almost a stigma about it. I hope this makes sense. I feel like the closer you are to the animal, there might be... Okay, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, though, it is about the empathy. Hands on the animal. Empathy. It's a real, it's a real animal with, real, with a real life. It's a real process. And it's, uh, it's something that we don't take lightly, whether it's regarding the sacrifices, what we're talking about in the media context, or even eating in our current context. I'll end with a story. I'll end with one story. Oh, Sarah, you want to jump in? Just real quick. Who yeah. was it that had their hands on the head? Was it, I feel like it should be the man offering, bringing up the offering, which correct. is what it was. Yes, okay, okay. that is correct. Just, it's the person offering it. Yes, 100%. And I want to conclude with a story that speaks about the empathy. And I've told this story like once or twice before. You might recognize it, maybe not. The Baal Shem Tov was not only a mystic and a teacher and like a rock star, I mean, you know, like Jewish rock, and the founder of the Hasidic movement, he was also, he also practiced ritual slaughter at some point. He was a shochet, he was a ritual slaughterer. In communities in which there wasn't a slaughterer, he would, you know, before he became like famous, he would go around, teach, and, you know, do other Jewish things. Anyway, the story goes that in one town, I don't know how old he was or whatever it was, he was the ritual slaughterer, and then at a certain point, he left that town and went somewhere else. And so that town needed a, a shokhe, needed a ritual slaughter. So they hired a new guy. And this guy, they would shech, they would slaughter the animals. They would, they would do it, you know, not in the middle of the town. They would do it like in the outskirts by the forest or whatever it was. They didn't have a slaughter house, but they, they did it. They had a place where they did it. And the Baal Shem Tov always had an assistant who wasn't Jewish, but he assisted him in the, you know, when you're dealing with animals, it's a complicated thing. You need an assistant, just te- technical reasons. And so this fellow went with, so his fellow would always be with the Baal Shem Tov, and now he went with this new guy for the first time. And the guy, you know, part of it, as Mark mentioned before, is the knife is very highly specific. Um, I saw recently, after my grandfather passed away, so we were like kind of organizing some of his stuff, you know, his, he was a scribe and a shochet, and we were organizing his knives. I mean, those are big knives. You ever see a, an animal... There's different types of animals, gasois and dakois. Gasois are like heavy animals. 
Those are like the cows and the bulls and the steers. Like those are the big animals. And then you have the dakas are like the you know chickens and, and whatever and birds and that sort of thing. So different knives. Chicken use a, a small knife. We don't do finger. The fingernails only for the, the sacrifice, not for shchit, not for eating. You use a knife, but it's a small knife, like a few inches long, whatever it is. But the but the the knife for the animal, we're talking about. I don't know how many inches. It's a big knife. And that thing has to be sharp, like you wouldn't imagine. That thing has to be so, as Mark mentioned, has to be so well um, sharpened that when you run your fingertip along the edge of the blade, it's smooth as butter. The back of your finger, not your finger, it's going to be a slice it right open. Take the back of the fingernail and run it along the edge of the blade. If it if it skips, it's not kosher. Any nick. Any blemish, any anything, any lack of smoothness in the knife, not kosher, not kosher, not kosher. So you have to rinse the knife with water and then you sharpen it with a stone and you check it. And every time you got to keep on checking it throughout the day. Whether they do it every animal or every other animal, every three animals, it's on a regular basis. I think, I think ideally it's on every animal, between every animal. You, you, re, you resharpen it. It's an incredible amount of work. To become a shokhe, you have to create your own knife from scratch and demonstrate that you know how to make a blade. To be, to be certified as a shokhe, that's one of the things. It's a very practical, you gotta know how to, how to, how to make a knife. Yeah, take a hunk of steel and make a knife out of it. That's one of the things of being a shokhe because you're gonna have to sharpen it. That's part of, you're gonna have to know how to make that blade. Okay, back to the story. So about this new fellow, the new shokhet on the block is there and, and he's preparing his knife and he's about to slaughter. And the assistant says, whoa, what are you doing? It's not kosher. He says, what do you mean? He says, the knife is not kosher. It's not right. He says, rabbi, the knife is not good. He says, what do you mean? He says, he didn't prepare properly. He says, what do you mean? I rinsed it with water and, and, and I sharpened it. He's like, no. That's not how the Baal Shem Tov used to do it. When he would check an animal before, he would cry bitter tears. And he would use the water of his, his tears to sharpen the knife. And to me, that it, what was he crying about? To me, it's simple. He was about to take the life of an animal. And that's not to be taken lightly. It doesn't mean that it should never be done. Right? There is, we are granted permission by Torah to eat an animal. When it's part of a higher a higher order, a higher integration and transformation. So that is the allowance. In fact, the Talmud says that a person who's not mindful should not eat meat. So there's almost a requirement to that, that level of mindfulness because all puns intended, the stakes are so high. But, sorry, I couldn't resist, right? But the Baal Shem Tov would cry, would cry, and with the tears, he would sharpen his knife. And so this fellow, this non, this fellow wasn't Jewish. He didn't know the laws, but he's like, you're doing it wrong. Where are your tears, bro? That's, to me, that's like, that's the, that's the, that's the consciousness. We don't take this, that's like the, the mindfulness, the mindset. Placing the hands on the animal, it's a transference, it's a, there's an integration, there's a connection over there. Anyway, all right, we're, um, I feel like uh, the point has been made. All right, it's great to see you all. Uh, looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Don't forget tonight, 7.30 p.m., Rosh Chodesh Society. I feel like the last few sessions, there have been multiple things going on. on uh, when the last few Rosh Chodesh Societies, there have been multiple um, classes on a Monday night. Tonight, 
It's the only game in town. You can join in person right here at Jess Place, 7.30 p.m. Or you can join on Zoom. Either way, join us. If you're already signed up, great. Then you should have received the email. If not, let me know. We'll get you signed on for it. You can do a la carte. Just choose tonight's class. The topic, the class will be taught by Dina Schusterman. And the topic is all about connection, spiritual connection, prayer, and meditation. A very connected and spiritual lesson. And of course, a very timely one, especially regarding prayer, especially with all the things that we need to pray for in our lives and in our world. All right, my friends, great to see you all. We'll see you tomorrow. Please, please God, sei gesund. Be well. We'll see you guys. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining.